Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. A lot of the times great songwriters come in pairs. Rodgers and Hart, Ashford and Simpson, Isaac Hayes and David Porter. And now, add to the list Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez. The two have written dozens of songs for movies and TV together. They've won award after award. That includes the music from Frozen, so if you're a parent, you can thank them for Let It Go. But writing songs for a movie like that isn't easy. I mean, take it from them. So much great material gets left on the cutting room floor. One of the things we had to cut from that was, I hope that I don't vomit in his face. (laughs) Um, They they were like, you can't say vomit. You just can't say vomit. It makes people vomit. There was a a girl in the story room who you could tell every time we mentioned it or talked about it, she just got sicker and sicker. (laughs) (laughs) She was turning green at the end of the song. And um, and so we were we were kind of we were like, come on, come on. That's that's funny. It's bullseye. Coming up, a special Academy Awards edition of Bullseye. Kristen and Robert talk about their Oscar-nominated song for Disney's Coco. The two have been songwriters pretty much their entire lives. They've been married for almost 15 years, and they're parents, too, which doesn't always mix perfectly with being Academy Award-nominated songwriters. It's funny because, um, you know, they've never, they've always been mildly annoyed at our trips to go to awards shows and stuff like that. Um, and this time, we they've been incredibly supportive. And I think it has something to do with the fact that we're bringing them as our dates. But first, great Lori Metcalf. She's up for her first Academy Award for her supporting role in the wonderful Lady Bird. Growing up, she didn't really have her mind made up about becoming an actress. I mean, she liked theater and all, but it was impractical. You couldn't study something impractical in college. But I will pursue the study of German, thinking, what, oh, I'll be a translator somewhere. You know, where? I, there, there was no connecting of the dots anywhere. That's all coming up on this year's Bullseye Oscars special. We just invented that. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is Lori Metcalf. Lori's a veteran actor. In the late 70s, when she was in college, she and a few of her classmates started putting on plays at a Unitarian church in Deerfield, Illinois. Those classmates, by the way, included people like Gary Sinise, John Malkovich, and Tracy Letts. The theater, which they called Steppenwolf, became one of the most acclaimed companies in the United States. Maybe you were lucky enough to see Lori in the off-Broadway rendition of Balm and Gilead back in the 80s. She won a-, a thousand awards for her part in it. You almost definitely saw her in another role, though, on Roseanne. For nine years, she played Jackie, Roseanne's sister on the show. Lori just got her first-ever Academy Award nomination for her role in Lady Bird, the coming-of-age movie directed by Greta Gerwig. The movie centers around the title character, Lady Bird McPherson, a high school senior living in Sacramento, California. She's dreaming of getting out, moving to the East Coast, going wherever it is that writers live. Lori plays Marion, Lady Bird's mom, and the relationship between the two of them is one of the most compelling things about the movie. In a way, it's the subject of the movie. It's, it's complicated. It's messy. They fight a lot. They push each other's buttons. But they also really 
love and care for each other. Let's take a listen to a scene from Lady Bird. So a little background. This is towards the beginning of the movie. Lady Bird just made plans to spend Thanksgiving with her new boyfriend. And in this scene, Marion is taking her to the thrift store to pick out a new dress to wear at his fancy family's house. Did Danny say whether his grandmother has a formal Thanksgiving? I don't know. There are a lot of kids, but she lives in the Fab 40s. Oh, well, your dad and I went to a dinner party once in that neighborhood. The CEO of ISC, that was pretty formal. You're not going to a funeral. Well, I don't know. What says rich people Thanksgiving? I just think it's such a shame that you're spending your last Thanksgiving with a family you've never met instead of us. But I don't know. I guess you want it that way. Are you tired? No. Hey, Marion. Hey, Joyce. Hey, how's the baby? He's crawling. No, I want to see a picture at checkout. Okay. okay. So if you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. Oh, okay. I just couldn't tell because you were dragging your feet. Well, I just couldn't tell. Why didn't you just say pick up your feet? I didn't know if you were tired. You were being passive aggressive. No, I wasn't. You are so infuriated. Please stop yelling. I'm not yelling. Oh, it's oh, perfect. Do you love it? Oh, man. Uh, Lori Metcalf, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. I have to say that when I watched Lady Bird, and and I watched it really knowing nothing about it, I watched it Mm -hmm. before it came out because we were going to have Greta Gerwig on the show, Mm -hmm. and I had more, like, intense, upsetting uh, high school flashbacks of the relationship between my wife and her mom, which was a wonderful relationship and is a wonderful relationship, and my mother-in-law is the best. But it's those weird emotional dynamics are so tense and so continuous. Yes. They're, they're the, the, the mother-daughter – well, it's a beautiful and so complex mother-daughter relationship that Greta captured um, on the page, you know, as the writer, the screenwriter, and then and, – and also in the direction that she so brilliantly did. And, and it's, it's how um, those – the intensity can just spin out on a dime and then everything falls away and is forgotten because you're on to the next uh, lovely moment between the mom and the daughter. Um, she just really did that well. Did living with the script change the way that you thought about your relationship with your own kids or your relationship you with know, your mom? It really did. I was looking at it from the mother's point of view, obviously. And and um, when I first read the screenplay, I, I I knew instantly, you know, how the headbutting scenes would go because I was I was actually living that at the time with a teenager in the house, and so those were really easy to connect to. But I was also really um, thankful that Greta peppered in the, the the moments of heart between the the mom and daughter, and where they are on the same page, they're comforting each other, or they're um, reminiscing about, or they're having a a, a very nice shared experience together because this is a we're just seeing them during this dysfunctional moment in their lives it's never always been this way and it won't stay this way but what i was um really shocked when i sat in an audience for the first time and listened to it watched it um hearing uh some of the language come out of my character's mouth because in playing it, I knew where that character was coming from, and, and it was from a, a, a place of heart, actually, of wanting to help, of wanting to, 
you know, kick this kid's ass and get her into gear and 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 make her, you know, just sit up and start to appreciate things and you know, everything that the mother wants for her daughter, but to hear it come out in such an aggressive way when I watched it was really startling to me and really did make me think of how I have phrased things to my own kids. Was there anything that Greta Gerwig told you uh, about what she wanted the character to be and what she wanted the film to be beyond what was on the page? No, I think it was all on the page. It really, she had worked so carefully on the script, so meticulously, that by the time we got to the set, um, there was never that weird scramble that you can have sometimes where everybody looks at each other and says, well, this isn't working. Now what do we do? Because we have to get this shot in, you know, the next three hours. We were all on the same page. We had a couple of days of rehearsal, not days, a a few meetings where Greta would spend with either... um, as many of us together as 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 could in in whatever city that we were in, or Sersha and I got to spend a couple of days with her in in her apartment or at her office in L.A. right before we were about to shoot, just to make sure we were on the same page, just to make sure that if uh, we were going to have another um, antagonistic scene together, that we didn't want to make it the same as the one before it, because there's a lot of that throughout the the film with the mother and the daughter, and so we wanted to parse out, you know, who was actually triggering it this time around, who was being passive aggressive, who was who was interpreting whatever was something benignly said, you know, in an antagonistic way, uh, you know, mix it up like that. So all of the the battles weren't the same. There is kind of a, an amazing blend of textures in those relationships as I see them. I mean, it's something that I have with my mom, but it, it don't feel like it's the same, which is there's a lot of just kind of like, there's a lot of kind of poking and falling back. <laughs> and it, I don't think it was a relationship that I had seen before in mm-hmm. a film that kind of, there's a lot of bruise pressing, but not a mm-hmm. lot of dressing down, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. (laughs) Chilling, yes. (laughs) Because it's so real. It's, you know, she just, maybe we haven't seen it, but it certainly exists in probably every family that I know, and she's really captured it. Let's hear another scene from Lady Bird. My guest is Lori Metcalf. Um, So in this scene, uh, the whole family, including uh, the brother and his girlfriend, are all sitting down at breakfast. And Marion, uh, which is uh, Lori's character, and Lady Bird are, are arguing over who should make the eggs. And then the vegan girlfriend, who is maybe like 19 or 20, she's kind mm-hmm. of saying that uh, eggs are bad for the environment. And the dad is there, and he's reading the newspaper and not really paying attention. And they're all sitting together, and they're talking to each other, but no one is actually breaking through to anyone else. Why can't I just make the eggs? Because you take too long, you make a big mess, and I have to clean the whole thing up. Eggs aren't good for the environment anyways. What? You heard her. Eat quickly, please. Look at all these pictures. Every newspaper looks like USA Today. Shelly and I are trying to be vegan. Hence the soy milk. You wear leather jackets. But they're vintage, so they don't support the industry. They aren't done. There's white stuff. You know how much you have brambles? Pigs are smarter than him, even. I never thought brambles was a genius, okay? Mom, the eggs are not done. Fine, make your own 
I wanted to. You won't let me. Sister doesn't like me. I'm hungry. She does. There's a chance. Going to bed. <laughs> I, I I have a buddy who has actually uh, guest hosted this show before, a comedian named, named Guy Branham. And he is a huge gay genius from outside of Sacramento. <laughs> and he's he's from an he's from what you might call rural Sacramento. Um, mm. You know, it doesn't you don't have to go that far outside of Sacramento before you're in America's breadbasket. Right. And. I think Guy connected more deeply to the Sacramento-ness of this film than mm-hmm. a- anyone else on this planet. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading about your early life, I wondered if, as a person from southern Illinois, whether you related to that Sacramento-ness, that feeling of living in almost an, like an outpost. Yeah, I did. I think Greta described Sacramento as the Midwest of California. Mm-hmm. So I felt perfectly at home, whether we were, you know, shooting scenes within the house, which was actually set in L.A., or and during the last two weeks when we got to go up. And it was my first time seeing Sacramento, and things just sort of clicked. I mean, it it, it seemed like a, a small town. And you couldn't I, – I saw the beauty in it, but I could see how easily it would be passed over by um, – especially by a teenager having gro- grown up there. Um, and the architecture even made sense to me. I don't know. It, it It's a love letter from Greta to Sacramento. And um, I, 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 it, it made me really, really appreciate the place. If you were telling someone what was special about where you grew up in the way that she did with Sacramento, what do you mm. think what do you think someone wouldn't understand about what it's like to be from Southern Illinois? Um, I like the flatness of it. <laughs> and I lo- of course, it was, you know, very long time ago. So there was a I, there was a naivety that I liked growing up where I did. Um, small town, again, um, I think at that point, it was the town was only it was under 10,000, maybe. I, I just it was very clear to me. Uh, Southern Illinois just has a ver- has a clearness, I guess. I just understand, you know, the people are very um, practical and upfront about things. There's uh, there's not a lot of uh, role playing going on or anything. You just you understand somebody pretty quickly. They just are what you see them as. You know, it really is something. The extent to which the kind of cultural experience of growing up in a particular place mm-hmm. doesn't translate perfectly when you are somewhere else. And you have to really like not just learn how to understand how people from other places are in the world, but also just understand that other people from other places in the world are different. Like it's a sort of a two-step mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah. Did you have that? Did you have that experience? Like when? Well, you... my first experience w- was when I when I did go to college, and I didn't go as far as Lady Bird. I didn't go across country. I, I stayed within um, Illinois, so I went about um, I don't I don't a few hundred miles away to Central Illinois, from Southern to Central, which was a huge move for me, and um, I started hearing um, a, a very very particular but 
to me, foreign accent, really, really strange. Had no idea what it was, and it finally dawned on me that these were kids coming down from Chicago. <laughs> it was like a different land. <laughs> and it took me a long time to piece it together to figure it out. <laughs> you could eventually you figure you learned that they were the ones holding a jar of sport peppers. <laughs> Signature Chicago condiment. <laughs> yeah, and little did I know that that I would move there and 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 form a theater company and spend the next 20 years, you know. I feel like you I get the impression that when you were a teenager and even when you were in college, you did not have a plan. To, no, to... no plan. No. I I mean I I worked up the nerve to audition for a play while I was in high school, and that's as far as it went. You know, I I had I, I was not trying to kid myself that I would ever be able to make a living at being an actor because nobody did, nobody that I knew, nobody within you know thousands of miles of me. When you were in college, and you were majoring in, I believe initially German, <laughs> um, which uh, is... pointless. Is that a romance language? It's definitely a very romantic oh, college major. I don't, you know, I had taken it in in high school, and I I really loved the language, but what I thought that I was going to do with it, I mean, I hear this is a typical seventeen year old's thinking, you know, like there's no way I'm going to be an actor, so I won't pursue that, but I will pursue the study of German. Thinking what? Oh, I'll be a translator somewhere. You know where? I there there was no connecting of the dots anywhere. So, but I did know that I I did know that I liked the language and 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 in hindsight I I think I just like language and I like writing. I love and I like to be a literal interpreter. So I I was going after being an interpreter in the wrong way. So acting kind of solved that for me. I, I'm able to be an interpreter, um, not only of language, but of body language. And uh, th- that to me is, is really fascinating. Among the folks who ended up being founding members of the Steppenwolf Theater, who were your friends in college, mm-hmm. who, who do you remember glomming onto first? Or glomming onto you? I don't mean to be presumptuous. Well... It was we glommed on all together as some icky group. Uh, frankly, <laughs> I mean, it was very incestuous. <laughs> so we, you know, we switched partners all the time. We were very uh, secluded and insular. We 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 knew nobody else, especially when we formed our little tight weirdo company. But I, I, we were all taken with each other. We we just had a shared sense of humor, and we had a shared passion for theater. Um, and we, what we all wanted to do more than anything was either make each other laugh in a role or make each other cry in a in a part. You know, so we challenged each other in, in, in that sense. And we were very lucky that we had a lot of talented people. It was just a fluke. And we also had a lot of talented directors that came out of it because none of, we were all just actors. Nobody wanted to direct. That was like the, that was the dud job if you had to direct a play because that meant that, you know, you, you didn't get to be on stage with the rest of the gang. What did John Malkovich wear when he was 20? 
I well, um, I don't know how to describe it. Um, <laughs> he would wear he would wear a suit. That's for sure, which was unheard of. A suit and a tie and maybe even a vest. I mean, this is and like 1974 or 5 yeah, or something, yeah, right? Yes. Ridiculous. And then paired with giant, giant platform shoes. Or for a while, I think he went through one of those phases where he wore those little Chinese slippers. They're just black and they have a little strap that goes across. Like a Bruce Lee, Mary Jane situation? Yes, yes. He was the most fashion forward of all of us. I mean, the rest of us, and I still do, are in jeans and a flannel shirt every day. That's what I'm wearing right now, you know. Was it as intense as the reputation suggests it was? And not just intense, like intense almost to the point of like to the whatever is just short of violence, I think, is yeah. pretty much what the reputation of uh, yeah. that yeah. theater it was. Yes, it was. Um, yes, it was. Yeah, yes, we would do things on stage. That, I mean, if we were supposed to beat each other up on stage, then we beat each other up. You know, there was we, we didn't see any other way except to, to to do it that way and it was intense in the in the in the fact that in the sense that we were 20 years old and everything is intense you know and so you can have a company meeting and somebody's going to start screaming and run out into the street you know and want to be begged to come back come back please please we didn't mean it you know everything was heightened um, and and again, we had you know people were having relationships within there, and that all that comes with its own baggage, you know. Like maybe one couple is just broken up, and they're not speaking or not on good terms, and everybody's tiptoeing around them, you know. It it was a uh, it was a melting pot of of adolescent angst and 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 and, and excitement and. Uh, I don't know that I would want to visit revisit that again, <laughs> but in the moment it was it was always exciting. I was shocked to read that literally <laughs> that literally when you were picking what play to do, you just <laughs> you'd go to the library, yeah, <laughs> to the play section. Yeah, so what year that would have been like 78 or 9 or something like that. So we would go to the library and check out best plays of 1977. <laughs> and and just try and find something that at least had a role for a couple of us and then the others could fill in. Lori, I don't know if it was a good plan. It's a better plan than checking out worst plays of 1977. True. True. Yeah. <laughs> But we we had no resources, you know, and nobody could write. So we we knew we were chomping at the bit to get great parts and wanted to act, and we we needed that vehicle, you know. So we would just any play was good enough, you know. We would just go at it one hundred and fifty percent. Even more from Laurie Metcalf still to come. We haven't even talked about Roseanne yet. Plus, Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez, Oscar-winning songwriters. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Independent Lens, an Emmy Award-winning documentary series featuring films from across the country that remind us we're all neighbors. See their unique stories Monday nights at 10, 9 central on PBS and streaming free on IndependentLens.org. Presented by ITVS.
What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actress Lori Metcalf. She's nominated for the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her role in the movie Lady Bird. You had a part uh, that transformed your acting career in a play called Balm and Gilead, mm-hmm. um, which by the time you were doing it in Steppenwolf was already a revival. And then you, as a group, brought it to Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, Off-Broadway. Off-Broadway. And this is in the early 1980s, I guess. Yeah. And I I read Frank Rich's review from the New York Times of that show. I I don't I mean I, I have hardly ever read a more effusive review about an acting performance than the paragraph that he dedicated to you. I think he said that it it will surely be uh, one of the uh, highlights of the year in theater or something like that. Well, it was. <laughs> It was um, a really special play, and it was a really special time to be in New York. It's the first time I'd ever gone to New York, went there as a group. We knew the play worked because we had done it in Chicago, and it was working really well. And um, it was a very theatrical play, which was different for the time, and, and John Malkovich directed it, and he threw in music by Tom Waits and Bruce Springsteen and Ricky Lee Jones, and it, it, really, it took off. And, and those three people came to see the play in a little 125-seat house. It was really a heady time to be doing theater, but it came with this terrific... Um, part that I got to play, which had a long monologue in the middle of it, which was so beautifully written that it, it, it was just a, a, a real surprise to the audience. And to this day, about every two or three months, somebody stops me somewhere and says that they saw that play. And and that it has stayed with them. They can quote lines from it. They remember it vividly because I think it was so theatrical. It had, it had um, thirty people in the cast, and sometimes people would freeze, and a big spotlight would come down on one person, and the music would swell. It was very very different, and and um, people remember the pictures that it that it formed, and they remember that monologue too. That monologue, when you say it was a big monologue, that was like a 10 or 20-minute monologue, like almost a one-act play in and of itself. Uh, I, I, I don't have any recordings from 1984, um, but I do have a recording from a, a few years ago at Lanford Wilson's uh, memorial service where you performed just a little bit of one of the monologues and, and talked about uh, what the work and what he meant to you. Your character, Darlene, is a somewhat naive prostitute, and you're in this diner that you described that's full of various types of people who are on the outs, you know, uh, mm-hmm. runaways and, and junkies and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And this character is very, um, has an odd sort of optimism. Um, yeah. 
in her foolishness. So I, I want to take a listen to just just a little bit of my guest, Lori Metcalf, uh, performing Darlene uh, from Lanford Wilson's play, uh, Balm in Gilead. This guy I used to go with when I first got a room of my own up on Armitage Street. Do you know that by Chicago? Most of the streets either run east-west <laughs> or up and down. <laughs> it's pretty much one or the other. But some of them kind of cut across all the rest of them, like Amity Street does, and a lot of the nicer ones do. Fullerton does. And they're wider with big trees and all, and there are all of these lovely old apartment buildings, very well taken care of, with the little lawns out front, little flower boxes in the windows and all, you know what I mean? And the rents, compared to what they charge you with here, the rents are practically nothing even in this neighborhood. So my apartment was two flights up right in the front. It was so cute, you would have loved it. They had it all done over when I first moved in. They had three rooms. And just this lovely big living room looked right out onto Armitage Street and a cute little kitchen. And the bedroom looked out onto a garden. And across from the garden, there was a, a, park, a park, ramp park. Or some park, I never Everything she's saying is wrong. <laughs> she's getting all all the names of things wrong. And it, this was so um, wonderfully uh, written that it was a, a character that, you, you know, I think somebody said you, you, you would kill yourself if you were caught on a long bus ride with this person. <laughs> um, and so it – and it's just – she's just um, beyond stupid. And it goes from being a character that you would totally write off to someone who is very, very deeply moving at the end. And uh, that, that, that was the brilliance of the writing. And that, that's why I think that people, the monologue stu- stood out so, so well because it was just something that you hadn't seen or you didn't expect it. You thought, okay, I know this person right off the bat. And then, by, and then 15 minutes later, you're, you're sobbing because of what she's saying. You were not an accomplished screen actor when you were cast on Roseanne. No, I'd never done anything. No, uh, no, I take that back. I had done one movie. Yeah, you were in Desperately Seeking Susan. Mm-hmm. Did you, like, move to Los Angeles and start auditioning for sitcoms or... <laughs> Well, I went to, I was in Chicago doing plays back to back to back and then I had and then you know went to New York to do Balm and Gilead and off of that I got cast in Desperately Seeking Susan and I thought okay well that was a you know just a one time only film shot or whatever. Then I went back to Chicago more plays more plays and then I thought you know what maybe I'll uh, Gary Sinise had moved out to L.A., and he was having some good luck uh, getting some TV work, I think. And I thought, maybe I'll go out to L.A. I'll give it two weeks. I'll um, stay on somebody's couch and see if I can get a movie. And then it just so happened that um, the same casting directors who cast Desperately Seeking Susan were casting Roseanne, and they were in L.A., and I happened to be there. I mean, literally in the right place at the right time. And I went in and read for them. They didn't even have the sides written for the sister. So I read Roseanne's sides, and I got the part. And then I thought, oh, I don't know, though, a TV Role. What if I end up getting typecast? And they're like, you, you know what? You'd be an idiot to pass on this. So 
I I took it, and luckily it was um, just one of the best written sitcoms ever. I mean, one of the best sitcoms ever. I know that you can't yeah. compliment the acting because you were one of the actors, but uh, all around, <laughs> one of the greatest television shows ever made. Um, yeah, I mean, I... Uh, how about this? Let's hear a scene from Roseanne. <laughs> and my, my guest is Laurie Metcalf. And if you don't remember well Roseanne, well, great news. You get to watch Roseanne for the first time. But um, uh, Laurie played Jackie, who was Roseanne's sister. Um, uh, Roseanne was the lead in the show alongside John Goodman. And so in this clip from the show, Jackie and Roseanne are finding out that their dad passed away. And Roseanne is sitting at, I think it's a kitchen table, and Jackie is talking on one of those phones that hangs on the wall, and Roseanne has made her call a relative to to uh, break the news that, that their dad has died. Annie Barbara, it's Jackie. Jackie, I'm fine. Fine. I'm fine. I have some bad news. Dad is not with us anymore. I said, Dad has passed away. He's passed away. Dad is gone. Dad's dead. He's dead. No, Dad. Dad. He's fine. He sends his love. <laughs> I feel you like... know who wrote that? Who's that? Uh, Norm Norm Macdonald. Oh, well, there he wrote you go. That, that little bit, yeah. He's got a wicked sense of humor. You know, he was one of the writers on this R- Roseanne reboot. He came in to write. Yeah, he was sitting there in a uh, he was sitting there in a in a room with my buddy Morgan Murphy, who's a brilliant yeah, TV writer. Morgan. But I was like, she's sitting in there with Norm Macdonald in a windowless writer's office. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, how did it feel to return to that so many years? It later? was surreal. It was weirdly, it was sort of unsettling because so much time had passed and yet it felt like no time had passed at all. And we'd not been in all, all of us in a room together for 20 years. And they recreated the set perfectly. I mean, everything was exactly the same. And which which they had to do from scratch. Did you have to think when the prospect of this came up, is this something that I want? No, I didn't even think about it. No, I just I had always hoped for at least a reunion show uh, when it ended twenty years ago, and but I'd given up hope because so much time had passed. And and then when uh, Sarah Gilbert called and said, "Would you would you like to revisit Roseanne?" I everybody said immediately said yes, and uh, it was a great vibe on the set. Everybody wanted to be there. I think the writers wrote really true to the characters. Um, the sh- we did nine episodes and comes on in late March. And uh, I think it's a real throwback to, to what the show was like, you know, like just sort of small stories, uh, family-oriented, uh, but, you know, set in 2018. Lori Metcalf, uh, you're the greatest. Thank you very much for <laughs> coming on Bullseye and talking to me. What an honor to get to have you on the show. I was so Thanks, happy Jesse. To, to get to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Laurie Metcalf, ladies and gentlemen. She's up for Best Actress in a Supporting Role at the Academy Awards. Those are happening March 4th. You can catch them on television. If you live in New York, she'll be performing on stage in the Edward Albee play Three Tall Women. That opens March 29th. And if you haven't seen it yet, Lady Bird is still playing in select theaters. And man, it sure is great. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guests are a dynamite songwriting duo, Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez. Together, they wrote Remember Me from the hit Disney Pixar film Coco. Before that, Kristen and Robert wrote the songs for Disney's Frozen, including the Academy Award-winning and chart-topping Let It Go. Robert also wrote music for the Book of Mormon, Avenue Q, Scrubs, and more. He's actually one of only 12 people to win an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, an EGOT right here on Bullseye. If you haven't seen Coco yet, first of all, you should see Coco. It's super great. Uh, Secondly, the story revolves around Miguel, a young boy living in a small town in Mexico. Miguel is an aspiring musician, even though his family has long since banned music for reasons that are a little complicated to explain here. And on the Day of the Dead, when families all over the country remember their lost loved ones, it all comes to a boiling point. He runs away from home, and by a stroke of magic, he meets his ancestors in the land of the dead. It's a fantastic premise told with rich, striking colors. Is Coco a kid's movie about death? Sort of, yes. But it's also about the legacies we leave behind and the way that families change. Remember Me, the song that Kristen and Robert wrote, really drives that point home. Let's listen to one of the two versions of the song that are in the film. And that's one of the amazing things about the song. In the movie, without giving away any spoilers, there are two very different versions with very different meanings. This one is a love song from a parent to a child, a kind of lullaby. Remember me, though I have to say goodbye. Remember me, don't let it make you cry. For even if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. I sing a secret song to you each night we are apart. Remember me Though I have to travel far Remember me Each time you hear a sad guitar Know that I'm with you The only way that I can be Until you're in my arms Kristen Anderson Lopez and Bobby Lopez, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show or uh, back on the show as well. Thank you so much for having us. We were so excited when we saw this on our itinerary. (laughs) (laughs) I am worried for you because you guys have a show opening on Broadway, which is 3,000 miles from where we're sitting right now (laughs) in like two and a half weeks. Uh Uh-huh. Is this, are you like frantically rewriting songs right now or are you locked in? Um... 
Uh, well, let's see. In the car <laughs> on the way here, we were um, mixing or like working on the final mix for the tracks that we're releasing on Frozen Fridays starting February 23rd. Um, we we may have rewritten some of the opening number the night before we <laughs> flew out here for the Oscar luncheon. Um, we may... Uh, There's just no telling whether yeah, we did yeah. or not. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot. I mean, you have been at this level of intensity and efficiency now for something like five or seven years. Like, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever corresponded with you, which I do once or twice a year, uh, without you being in crunch time to deliver a giant Sorry. project. Yeah, see, that's that's a sad, sad truth. What do your children think of, and the two of you are married and have children, uh, what, do, what do your children think of your lives when mom and dad are in crunch time getting a musical on stage? Well, this one is different than any other, because um, we have never actually had to both birth a Broadway musical, which is basically like taking med school boards for five to seven weeks. Um, so this one, we, we've armored up. We've prepared them. Since October, we've been talking about February and March, like winter is coming. Um, <laughs> and, and we have my sister and her writing partner coming to live at our house starting February 15th. So if we need to see a preview and then spend all night writing the show and then spend the whole next day putting it in, um, I mean, rewriting the show and spend the whole next day putting in the rewrite. Um, we can. You need to have that flexibility. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Because I'm talking a lot. Well, it, it's funny because, um, you know, they've never they've always been mildly annoyed at our trips to go to awards shows and stuff like that. Um, and this time we they've been incredibly supportive. And I think it has something to do with the fact that we're bringing them as our dates uh, to the Oscars. <laughs> they were like, when are nominations announced? Yeah, actually, <laughs> they we were against? clocking it. They were like, nominations, seven days from now. Um, and we actually did just go buy their dresses on Saturday afternoon at Saks Fifth Avenue. Um, and they're very excited. So they're, they have skin in the game on this Oscars. But we've been preparing them for, um, you know, that's just going to be a wonderful time for us to, in the middle of previews for Frozen, to just leave New York and just be together. And yes, we do have to walk a red carpet and wear some fancy clothes, but it will be 24 hours of quality time. Of quality time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a very ambitious way to look at this trip. <laughs> it sounds like it will be 24 hours of trying to get children and their luggage onto airplanes and that kind of thing. Oh, they're good. They're very good travelers, I have to say. They they know they know the rolling bag. They they're really good with that. The flight attendants always give us compliments on them. They like to sit together and be really really polite and then the flight attendants give them free stuff. Um, they have worked it out where if we are if we are model children and we pretend like we really love each other and we're very polite <laughs> that we will get so much sugar from those flight attendants. Um, it's, it's a system. More bullseye after a quick break. Still to come, Bobby and Kristen tell me how to sneak grown-up jokes into kids' movies. It's harder than you'd think. It's bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Support for Bullseye and the following message come from Starbucks. For the past 43 years, Starbucks has served their bold signature espresso. But for the first time ever, they're introducing a second espresso, Starbucks Blonde Espresso. It's smooth and subtly sweet. So whatever your drink is from a flat white to an iced Americano, try it with Starbucks Blonde Espresso. And as always, you can order ahead on your Starbucks app. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Help us out by telling us what you like and how we could improve by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. Takes just a few minutes and you'll do all of us at Bullseye a huge favor by filling it out. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. Thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests, Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez, wrote the song Remember Me for Disney's Coco. It's up for Best Original Song at this year's Academy Awards. Kristen, I get the impression that you fell in love with Bobby like when you laid eyes on him. Yeah, maybe you heard the story. I did. I totally did. She did. I, he walked in the door. And I, I was just out of like a six-year relationship, um, and I'm definitely having that moment of like, what, what's next for me? And he walked in. I was like, that's my husband. He's. I hope he's not too young. I hope he's not gay. Um, because I was coming in to play. Because he was some coming songs. in to play a song and <laughs> play a female puppet. Because um, it was he was presenting the first two songs he had written for Avenue Q, but there was just this very electrical thing. Um, and uh, it turns out she was right. Uh, he, yes, turns out he was my husband. He's not gay, and uh, he's a little younger. <laughs> I know about the incredible power of uh, having graduated from an arts high school where I did theater and met my wife. I know how much juice it carries to be heterosexual in that yes. environment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thrill. It's like something I I'm I would never ask for another partner. Uh, I'm thrilled to be married. Once in a while, I do think, remember how fun it was when you were the only straight guy around? <laughs> well, in the case of the BMI workshop, that that was the one place where it was opposite because it was a writing workshop. So, you know, if girls are socialized, if they love theater and everybody, all their parents and everyone around them says, you're an actress. Um, that's why you have so many girls it doing the plays and only like two guys, the two straight guys who, who get it all. Um, BMI was the opposite. It was a bunch of, of straight bunch of dudes, men yeah. who can't really express themselves. So they've chosen to to express it through music and rhyme and rhythm um, and like two girls. It was the one time that I ever felt like the hot girl was at the BMI <laughs> workshop for that year. <laughs> Uh, we got to change that, honey. <laughs> well, it's it's all about picking your context. I'm trying to think where else I could go to be the hot girl. Um, <laughs> I mean, the Oscars, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, it, Margot Robbie, like, walked by and you at the Oscar luncheon yesterday, and it just— There's no made... one more beautiful at the Oscar luncheon than you. Oh, you're so sweet. But Margot Robbie was. <laughs> She's like not a real person. My friend Kumail Nanjiani is very beautiful. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That guy, and they're they're another married couple that are both nominated. Um, 
They are you guys yeah. going to go on it like an Oscar double? We, date? we should do that. We we were the only two people who like we were each other's dates and when you get called up you go on this platform just like middle school graduation um and we were the only two collaborators that got to stand next to each other because we were married and sitting next to each other do you feel bobby when you are writing or performing musical theater like you can sit comfortably in the kind of um uh, I think the word I'm looking for is shamelessness that the medium requires. <laughs> um, I think it. I think there's a lot, a lot of joy for for me, and I think for Kristen too, in um, inhabiting a more dramatic part of yourself and imagining what what a character in a in a, a highly charged situation would be feeling. Um, and we also, you know, we grew up loving this stuff. You know, grew up wearing out these cast albums on, you know, Walkmans, on tapes and uh, on record players. And, and, you know, I think once that, that, that is, that is the, the greatest hits of our brain. And we wanted to, we wanted to be like them. What about you, Kristen? Are you oh, naturally shameless? I'm hopelessly shameless. <laughs> I, I've been shameless. There's uh, in terms of the embracing the, the large, vibrant, stylized world of musical theater. I mean, I just said that with very large gestures of my hands. Um, I I also think I think that we have a little too much shame um, about expressing our emotions in in the current climate right now. I think we'd all be a lot healthier if when when we. Um, needed to express something, we were able to say like "Peron, Peron," or uh, <laughs> or you know, "The sun will come out tomorrow." Like I, j- th- these are human emotions taken to an extreme, and I think extremes are good because that is what being alive is. Well, I think it seems appropriate that we should listen now to one of your most iconic songs, which is <laughs> Let It Go from Frozen, which is basically about that. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight, not a footprint to be seen. A kingdom of isolation And it looks like I'm the queen The wind is howling Like this swirling storm inside Couldn't keep it in Heaven knows I tried Don't let them in Don't let them see Be the good girl You always have to be Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know Well, now they know Let it go, let it go So something I like about that is I heard that, uh, Bobby, you actually came up with a, a kingdom of isolation and I'm its queen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a drag queenish line, isn't it? <laughs> um, Bobby, Bobby has big emotions. Um, for this mild mannered guy, he actually, I, I do think every once in a while, um, 
I, I turn to him and I'm like, okay, Elsa, um, Bobby, <laughs> <laughs> Bobby definitely um, has has this like part of him that that needs to stay perfect and and small, and then it's something will just happen and this huge, huge heart uh, just sort of bursts out of him, and so I think that's where those early lines in the song come from. Can you give me an example of that in your life? Okay, here's a great example. The first time um, that we had to take my daughter to get her first shots, the newborn, our first daughter, um, we went to the doctor and um, the doctor was like, okay, we're going to do it now. And, and, and I held the baby and they gave the baby the shot and, you know, she sort of went, and Bobby just started sobbing, absolutely, like, body-shaking, sobbing. Um, and, uh, and that's just sort of who he is. Like, things will hit him, and it'll just be a sudden wave of emotion. Whereas I'm very Lutheran and uh, Scandinavian. And it takes I know a lot more than a shot to takes, do that. I, I have to, you know, it takes a lot to take me out of the needle, uh, the safety of the needle to, to, to make it go past the line. And that's always shocking, too. But it's only happened like three times in my life. I definitely like trying to white knuckle that needle. I'm like, you're not going anywhere, needle. No. We're staying moderately upbeat. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, it's fine. It's fine. I'm very resilient. I'm very resilient. It seems like that song was part of the catalyst for transforming Frozen from a traditional fairy tale into, in some ways, kind of a deconstruction of the kind of fairy tale that Disney movies had been, especially for, you know, princess-driven, female-driven Disney stories. That there was something about, oh, maybe this character who was just going to be an evil, an evil queen type is actually a different thing. I, I presume that when you're writing a song from a character's perspective, there's no way to do it without empathizing with that character. But it seems like in writing that villain song, you know, in writing uh, I'm the bad guy song, or in this case, the bad woman, uh, you found points of empathy that were so deep that you, and so relatable to you, maybe you personally, Kristen, that like you couldn't simply let this be a villain. Absolutely. I think once once I started, I was taking we were taking a walk in Prospect Park and just talking about how do we deepen this song? And we started talking about the pressures that we feel. Um, and I, I started unleashing it as a wife does uh, on my husband, you know, all the pressure I was feeling at the time with small kids to be an incredible mom and cook the good food and be around, but also have a career and also be thin and also have a nice house. And just, I started realizing, oh my God, I am trying to be perfect in so many ways. No wonder I'm exhausted and dying to drink white wine at 3, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, and, and I tapped into that part of myself because what woman doesn't feel the need, like she has to be perfect because the movies are telling us that we have to be. What was it like for you to hear that in Bobby in such a concrete? I mean, that's a, those are themes that that we hear uh, yeah. as 
as dad types. But <laughs> uh, it, I feel like it's really powerful to hear it from someone that you're in love with so explicitly. You know, I have to admit that that the movie itself. Um, I mean, first of all, hearing it from from Kristen, you know, you you hear your wife say things like that a lot, and um, and you assume, well, she she has it tough, and I have it tough. Um, and I think it was a process of making this film, and then seeing the film and seeing the response to it that that really um, changed the lens through which I look at these issues, and and uh, you know, I think made me a lot more of a feminist than I even was before. Um, just how hard it is um, to get past all of the baked-in um, bias that that we all just have from being born, you know, from being born and being raised in 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 a culture, uh, and and it it being time for the culture to change, and and our the culture of our family certainly changed. Um, the our before Frozen, it felt like I was the the main writer, and Kristen was helping. And and now it feels like an equal partnership. Um, it I I realize how much she has to say, how much she has to say that no one has heard in a in a big mainstream way. And uh, you know I'm constantly in awe of how blind I was, um, you know, for so long. Bobby's acting woke, <laughs> which is good. It's good because uh, <laughs> that whole time I thought you were looking at him lovingly. You were just waiting. This is, for this your... is it's very hard to crack Kristen. She's not. She does not. She's not good at vulnerability. Uh, no, no. I, I, I do see a huge transformation. I'm not kidding. In, in my husband, um, over the last couple years, as he, as he really realized. He, he realized the lens. He was able to see the metal frame around the lens because Frozen was, um, you know, here he was representing this thing that was widening the lens a bit. And and he realized, oh, my gosh, there, there really is a lens. And, he, and, you know, when I say, when I noticed that, oh, almost everything we do, we have to get through a committee of men. And then it has to get through critics, which are mostly men of a certain age. And, you know, it's just pointing it out. Like, look, it's the numbers. Look at the numbers. Look at the how many men are in this room and how and how many women are in this room. And he's just paying a little more attention to it. That's all changing. And that's a really exciting thing. Um, but we're at the beginning of a of a of a change. And it's exciting for me. I want to play a song that the two of you wrote together, but I'd like you to tell me a little bit about it first. Um, it's called Wide Wide World. It's <laughs> <laughs> our first song. How'd you find that? Together. Uh, it's from a smash hit show called Bear in the Big Blue House. <laughs> oh, no. On Playhouse Disney. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, you dug deep, Jesse Thorne. I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I got this assignment um, because I was – uh, in with the the music supervisor of the show long ago when we were in the BMI workshop and Chris and I hadn't worked together at all we were dating we had just really started dating and um and I tried a couple of takes on this song my uh, my other collaborator my main collaborator at the time kind of begged out and he was like I, I you you take this one and then um I kind of got stuck cuz I was used to writing with someone by then and um and I said Kristen, why don't you why don't you come over and the guy doesn't know you're writing it with me, but let's just write it, and then we'll. Then if he says he likes it, then we'll tell him that that you worked on it too, and and then we can split the money. Um, 
And I think we had to write five different versions of this song. I remember they sent us back and back and back. And it was mostly about these two otters that loved clams and everything <laughs> that they said had to be about had clams. Had to be about clams. Um, yes, the, the clam jokes, because we did like three more songs for Bear in the Big Blue House. And there's just not much you can say about clams, but <laughs> we've said it all. Said. Well, particularly for children. <laughs> yes. uh, let's take a listen to the smash hit song Wide Wide World from Bear in the Big Blue House by my guests, Kristen Anderson Lopez and Bobby Lopez. I think that it sounds great. The wide open road, the wind in your fur, the whole world to explore. The wide, wide world, it's open and free. The road, the wind, the sun and the sea. I hear adventure calling to me out there in the wide, wide world. The wide, wide world, I'm hearing the call. But the road seems so long and trees seem so tall. Those are the voices you dream of singing. <laughs> Just spectacular. <laughs> um, but did you see the the dueling um, philosophies at yeah. work there? Yeah. Um, that that was just a prototypical dueling philosophy song that we tend to we tend to really try to avoid from now. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, you co-wrote two huge smash musicals. Um, and both of them, Avenue Q and the Book of Mormon, were partly uh, very sincere emotional journeys and partly kind of parodic and uh, satirical. And I wonder if you ever worried that you were good enough to write a parody song, uh, but were you good enough to write a quote-unquote real song? That's I never worried about that because I only <laughs> oh, worried good. if Can I was. Can you start worrying about that? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, I, I'll add it to the, my worry list. Now that you got the egot, <laughs> I just want to. I just want to take you down a few pegs. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get into songwriting to be funny. I never thought that that's where I would go. It was always one thing I wanted to do to make a musical where you laugh from beginning to end that drew from great spoof. Uh, material like Airplane or Spinal Tap or one of those great, you know, the Simpsons uh, musicals that 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 show up in the episodes. Let's hear a song from the Book of Mormon, which one of my guests, Bobby Lopez, co-wrote. Uh, this is the opening number. It's called Hello. Hello, my name is Elder Price, and I would like to share with you the most amazing book. Hello, my name is Elder Grant. It's a book about America a long, long time ago. It has so many awesome parts. You simply won't believe how much this book can change your life. Hello, my name is Elder Green. I would like to share with you this book of Jesus Christ. Hello, my name is Elder Young. Did you know that Jesus lived here in the USA? I think one of the cool things about the Book of Mormon is, you know, it has much of the the tone that the South Park guys have spent the last 20-some years working on, um, which is to say that, it, you know, it's, it's pretty no-holds-barred, particularly for a Broadway musical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
But I think the subject matter and the medium both lend themselves to a kind of generous open-heartedness that you don't get from uh, Airplane or um, any of the, you know, Spinal Tap or those other 10,000 jokes spoof things. Like the fact that these are young Mormon missionaries are the subjects of this, which is like the most emotionally vulnerable person in the world. (laughs) It's a person who's, as in that opening number, just like showing up at someone's door because they believe in God. As well-meaning as possible. Yeah. Which is like a really beautiful and amazing thing, you know? And so you can make an infinite, I mean, there's a wonderful song in the show called I Believe, which is like an inspirational tune about, uh, about, believing in about having faith but also the weird specifics of mormon theology and i don't mean to single out mormon theology all theology sounds weird if you don't believe in it that's right, that's, that's the point, the point <laughs> yeah. Of the book of mormon, right? yeah it's it's all it all sounds crazy but it's so important yeah. like how do we get through the the big highs and the big lows if you don't if you don't believe in believe something in impossible something, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think the whole thing works without that emotional generosity. Oh to yeah, those they say that parody closes on uh, closes on Friday night uh, on Broadway. You know, you need you need to have an emotional uh, through line of your show, otherwise people are like, huh, fun, and then they don't go home and recommend it. You need you need to feel something, and that that's what Broadway is all about. You guys wrote some great jokes into the into the Frozen songs. And I feel like you guys have like a lot of the jokes that are slipped into Frozen are sort of uh, uh, rhyme scheme faints and like little things that I would recognize from like friends who improvise musicals where, you know, you take a you take a sort of a prosaic word and then you surprise them with a weird word that rhymes with it and that kind of thing. Yes, that's that tends to be um what cracks us up? I don't know. We were just recalling Bobby. Bobby did um, a version of uh, Mystery Science Theater, and was just vamping to something on screen. And he wrote this little song about smelting. And yeah, it, yeah, they were iron workers we smelting. We smelt. We smelt. <laughs> um, it, it's language can be really goofy, and it's fun to lean into that. Uh, do you uh, have uh, a story about how? You got the joke, how can you have a ballroom without any uh, yeah, balls? Yeah, I was going to bring that one up. <laughs> into a children's film? <laughs> I think it was... Um, Deeply you know, sincere you children's know, the, film. The original line was, we got the ballroom, just no balls, which I think is a better <laughs> d- dual meaning We have line. the ballroom, just no balls. Yeah. Um, that one did not get through. That, that, <laughs> <laughs> that one we had we had to soften it a little, um, but somehow why have a ballroom with no balls? Uh, didn't, it didn't move the needle. They were kind of like, yeah, that's great. That's a good line. They they've had this ballroom and no balls. One for of the things we years. had to cut from that was, I hope that I don't vomit in his face. <laughs> um, they they were like, you can't say vomit. You just can't say vomit. It makes people vomit. Yeah, there was a, there was a uh, a girl in the story room who we, you could tell every time. Time we mentioned it or talked about it, she just got She's sicker like, and sicker. <laughs> <laughs> she was turning green at the end of the song, and um, and so we were we were kind of we were like, "Come on, come on, that's it's funny." And then um, our daughter 
came up with the alt line. Well, we were at the dentist um, when when they were like, no, it can't go through. And so I was trying to write it. And she was like, Mommy, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I have to rewrite. I hope that I don't vomit in his face. And then she went, I want to stuff some chocolate in my face. <laughs> so she actually wrote that line, ironically, at the dentist, who was probably saying, don't, don't eat chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to know that the line is somewhere in between vomit and uh, am I nervous or just gassy? <laughs> Which is in the film. <laughs> Don't know if I'm elated or gassy is um, certainly like when we talk about writing from a very personal place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the root chakra. <laughs> How did um, the song that you wrote for Coco, which is called Remember Me, come to you? Like what was the what was the RFP, the request for proposals? Like what was the remit? <laughs> what was the what was the thing they needed? Um Lee Unkrich, uh we he had seen Finding Nemo because he was a co-director on it. And I think he had always said that he wanted to do a piece where the music was the emotional turning point. Um, and so very, very early on, he reached out to us and we were working on uh, he knew he wanted to do something about memory and death and music and, and Dia de Muertos. Um, and he asked us, can you write a song that can mean two completely different things depending on the singer and the arrangement? And and we kind of said, you know, I hope so. Yeah, it's, it sounded like an amazing challenge because how can, how can a song – you know, be be one thing and another at the same time. And we thought maybe maybe we need when he goes to the land of the dead, he has to discover a missing part of it. But then we realized, no, it'll be a lot cooler if we could write one song with the same chord progression, the same tune, the same lyrics. Um, uh, that means that means one, you know, completely shallow thing and can be completely deep and emotional uh, at the turning point of the movie. So, um, and I, we, I remember sort of almost tearing up when Lee was describing what he wanted. Um, and I, we were kind of really hungry to write this song, especially because, you know, as, as we've said, we have two girls that our lives really center around and we have to leave them so much to come out here. Um, and we're constantly, you know, writing little songs to them and, and for them. And then luckily we we were able to turn it into a mariachi version that uh, that worked really That was rousingly. more like, you know, good night, ladies, remember me. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen Anderson Lopez and Bobby Lopez, Hollywood's premier songwriting power couple. Their song, Remember Me, is nominated for Best Original Song at this year's Academy Awards. It's featured in the Disney movie Coco, which is also up for Best Animated Feature. Let's take a listen to the blowout Vegas Mariachi stage show version of the song. Remember me. Though I have to say goodbye, remember me. That's it for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where just after Valentine's Day, we all stood at the window watching a slightly deflated-looking red heart-shaped balloon drifting haplessly over the lake. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson with help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Production fellows from MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shana Deloria. 
Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. You can find them on our website, MaximumFun.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube by searching for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, we've got some really good stuff up on YouTube right now. Uh, I did an outshot last week about Scarface that's doing great there. Um, quite a few real-life metal detectorists are upset about certain diction in the detectorists outshot from a few weeks ago. That is worth the visit. Also, the outshot will be back next week. We wanted to make some extra room for these two great interviews this week. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 